right into uh, our text this morning. We're going to be partly in Isaiah 61. We're going to be partly in, a little bit in Ezekiel 43, just for reference. And then for reference, we'll also be in Revelation chapter 21. So in your pew Bible, I think the bulletin tells you where you should be for Isaiah, if that's what you happen to be using. Pew Bible, I think it's page 620. For Ezekiel, in the Pew Bible, it will be page 730 and 731. And then Revelation is at the very end of the Bible. So wherever your Bible has the very end, uh, Revelation 21. So I want to review a few key essentials before we get into Isaiah chapter 61. We are in some very prophetic books of Scripture. Very, I mean, Isaiah is a prophet. So because he's a prophet, he's telling you lots of things prophetically, but we're really in the apex of what he's got to say prophetically because he's viewing life that is still in the future. He's still, he's describing an age which we still have not yet attained and Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus was ever born. So I want to, I want to highlight a few principles we learned last week regarding prophecy. Uh, this will help today. It will help when you think about any prophecy, though it won't answer all your questions. It just gives you some parameters, some guardrails, or some, some helps to try to understand what the Bible means to communicate when you of prophecy. So one of the things we learned last week is that prophecy comes in waves. Uh, it comes in layers. Uh, Oftentimes when the prophet says something, it's not, was it fulfilled in this one particular instance or in this second particular instance? Prophecy comes in waves so that what is prophesied oftentimes has a near fulfillment. It has a future fulfillment. I'm going to suggest, does it have a millennial fulfillment? What does that look like? And then it has an ultimate or final fulfillment. All those are possibilities, and I'm not saying every every prophecy always fits these four categories, but they often do, oftentimes do. And by the way, when I speak of millennial, let me explain that because I realize not everybody uh, may know exactly what I mean by that. And, well, the millennium, the concept of a millennium comes from Revelation 20 more than any one other particular place, and it's the idea that Christ... To Jesus to fulfill prophecy given in many places. There's coming a day where when he comes back in power and glory, we won't only have a new heaven and a new earth created, but there will also be a period of time where Christ rules physically in Jerusalem over the nations of the earth. And it will be a real reign that ultimately will lead to this ultimate reign of Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. Not everybody agrees with that. That's why I have a question mark under the millennial. Uh, I would call myself a premillennialist, meaning that I believe Christ one day is going to come back in power and glory. He will establish a messianic kingdom, which ultimately will lead to a new heaven and a new earth. If I weren't a premillennialist, I would probably be an amillennialist, uh, where I'm going to kind of scratch the the millennium as a distinct thing and tie it in with this ultimate reign of Christ and a new heaven and a new earth. I read a positively fascinating defense of amillennialism uh, when I went to Albuquerque a few weeks ago. Not so much that I'm, I'm renouncing premillennialism, but it was, it was quite fascinating and the author was very charitable and did a very good presentation. So, uh, good Christians can disagree on those things. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe even last week, I lose track of time at some point, but a real good case study for these categories would be the, the minor prophet of Haggai. And when we spent a little bit of time in Haggai, particularly in chapter 2, uh, what was described to Haggai and what he delivered to the people who were returning from exile out of Babylon, what he told them is, you're going to build a new temple. I want you to do this thing. And God is going to be pleased with this temple. He's going to fill this temple with glory. And the glory of this second temple, or or whatever temple we're talking about, the glory of this temple 
temple will be greater than the glory of the first temple. So the near fulfillment of that was they really did build a temple. Well, it wasn't really Zerubbabel, was it? Was it Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel built up the walls of Jerusalem. I think he was involved in the temple oversight on some level. But uh, funded by the Persian government, by the emperor of the Roman world, uh, that temple was funded by Gentiles in fulfillment of prophecy, in fulfillment of Isaiah, in fulfillment of Haggai. They really did build a temple. And they had a blank check to do it. That's the near fulfillment. And in some sense, because that temple was funded by the Gentiles, that's the glory of the Gentiles being brought into the temple. The future fulfillment would be when Jesus actually walked in that temple, the courtyards. Jesus graced that temple with his presence. That's better than the fact that the Gentiles funded it. Now you've got the Lord's Messiah, the eternal Son of God, walking and teaching in the courtyards of the temple. The glory of the Lord in the temple in fulfillment of prophecy. A third idea is that that prophecy in Haggai chapter 2 about a temple can be fulfilled in a millennium when Christ actually does rule in in Jerusalem over a kingdom in, in Jerusalem that has a temple which no man has ever seen yet to this day. And, and all of that is pointing to millennial temple, and then you've got the ultimate fulfillment in Revelation 21. So what I want you to do for starters is go to Ezekiel 43. I told you that if you're using a pew Bible, that'll you'll find that on pages 730, 731. I want you to feel a little bit of the tension here, even though I'm not going to resolve it because it's not resolved in my own mind. Starting in Ezekiel chapter 40, Ezekiel is given a vision, a prophetic vision regarding a temple. It's not the temple that was built by the exiles. It's pretty clear it's not that temple uh, for reasons why you'll see. And there's a lot of detail given regarding this temple. So if you're in Ezekiel, I'm not. If you're in Ezekiel, if you skip back to chapter 40, I don't know how your Bible reads... But in chapter 40, I've got a little subheading that's not actually part of Scripture. It's what the Bible translators put. It says, vision of the new temple. And then in verse 5, my Bible says, the east gate to the outer court. Verse 17, I've got the outer court. Verse 20, the north gate. Verse 24, the south gate. Verse 28, the inner court. I've got chambers for the priests in verse 44. In verse 48, I've got the vestibule of the temple. In chapter 41, it says the inner temple. In chapter 42, it's the temple's chambers. You've got a lot of detail given. It sounds like a real physical temple. It sounds like the kind of thing you would be able to lay your eyes on. You would be able to see. You would be able to touch. Because there's so much detail. It seems more than just this metaphorical image because of the detail. And then in chapter 43, regarding this temple that so much time has been uh, spent giving, uh, elaborating on, in chapter 43 it reads like this. Ezekiel says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I'd seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Kiber Canal. And I fell on my face. It's kind of like in, a, in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus ascends before the disciples' eyes. And they're gazing up to the heavens. And an angel or messenger from the Lord, an angel says, Just like you've seen him go, you will see him come back again. Just like Ezekiel saw a vision of the Lord's glory leaving Solomon's temple, just like he saw a vision of the Lord bringing judgment upon his people, just the same way the glory of the Lord is now returning. So however you view the judgment being real, the glory departing, just the same way the glory is now returning. Verse 4. 
as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, and that's important because in Ezekiel, in chapter 11, I think it was, the glory left from the east. And the glory never came back to the temple that Haggai and Zephaniah and Zerubbabel were building. There's no mention of glory other than the glory when Christ graced that temple. But this glory that's coming from the east, although although I remember talking with Sarah, when Jesus on Palm Sunday rode into Jerusalem, he rode in from the Mount of Olives on the east. And in some sense, I think that's a fulfillment, the glory of Messiah coming from the east to the temple. Didn't we talk about that? Yeah. Um, So you've got the glory entering the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up in verse 5 and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Just like it had left in the inner court. The glory now returns to this temple, however I'm to understand it. Verse 6, While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. One good possibility is that we're ta- we're, what's being described is a millennial temple that is yet to be built, that has never been realized, and the glory of God will fill that temple like it filled Solomon's temple and like it filled Moses' tabernacle way back in the day. Um, that's the gist of it. I could read a whole lot more of chapter 43. I think I could also read chapter 44, because in chapter 44 it also talks about the glory of the Lord filling the temple of the Lord and uh, Ezekiel falling on his face. So that's a possible millennial fulfillment would be Ezekiel 43. Now let me talk about the ultimate fulfillment. Go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Very end of your Bible. Revelation chapter 21. It starts off like this. John, uh, the Apostle John writes these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's the goal. That's the goal. New heaven and new earth. New Jerusalem. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Are you expecting the church? And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most like a jasper 
clear as crystal. And then the city is described at some length. Skip down to verse 22. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So in that description in Revelation chapter 21. And I've got as many questions as I think I have some answers. But I'm left with how much of this is figurative, how much of it is literal, how much is literal, how much is metaphorical. It's a little bit difficult to know, but in Revelation chapter 21, it specifically tells me there is no temple in this new heaven and new earth. There's no temple in this new Jerusalem because the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. God is the temple. God is dwelling with his people, and they're dwelling with God. God is the temple. But in in Ezekiel chapter 43, we had all this detail about you're going to build a temple, and the glory of the Lord is going to fill it. It doesn't sound like the same thing. In Revelation 21, there's no temple. In Ezekiel 43, there very much is a temple. And a a lot of ink has been spent describing this temple. One possibility, and I could be completely wrong, and I'm okay with that. One possibility is Ezekiel 43 is describing a millennial temple. Revelation 21 isn't describing that because he says there is none. Revelation 21 is describing an ultimate reality, an ultimate reality. When there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, and the new Jerusalem is the bride of the Lamb, and then you've got the rest the description that's already there. So, I, so I'm done with that, which doesn't provide a satisfactory solution. I want you to feel the tension of trying to figure this out. This layer upon layer. Uh, these waves of fulfillment. It started off with what they really did build back when the exiles were there. It continued with Jesus gracing that temple. A millennial temple, Ezekiel. An ultimate temple in Revelation 21. Go back to Isaiah. Actually, we're going to be in Zechariah. I forgot about Zechariah. So the very end of the Old Testament is Malachi. The last book before the New Testament is Malachi. The book right before that is Zechariah. I want to look at Zechariah 12 as well. Zechariah 12. So principle number one regarding prophecy is understanding it very often comes in waves. It comes in layers. Uh, I gave you different examples or some additional examples last week. How the Bible uh, has a near fulfillment and then sometimes a far fulfillment. That's not unusual. That's just the way prophets often spoke. A second principle, which I think is very important, is that when a prophet gives a message about something in the future, whether it's, it's this future or whether it's this ultimate future... When a prophet gives a message about the future, he very often does it by using terms that are familiar right now. And it doesn't mean that the words that he's using, you can expect that to take place in this ultimate future. He's using words that you understand now to help you understand what's going to happen then. So in Revelation 21, we talked about what we read was there's not going to be the sexually immoral there. There's not going to be idolaters there. There's not going to be these these categories of sinner in a new heaven and a new earth. And you're like, well, yeah, it's a new heaven and a new earth. You wouldn't expect to find those sinners there. But he's using that language because that's language you're familiar with. No matter how how you experience life right now, no matter whatever country or culture or time period you live in, no matter how good it gets, it's still stained by sin. It's not the ultimate fulfillment. And, and what it's stained by is your own sin, my own sin. I'm disappointed with myself. 
I let myself down. I trip and I, I stumble and I fall. And our culture does. Our culture is a mess. And so in Revelation 21, it's not describing something like they're still out there. It's just describing this ideal because that's what we struggle with now. I think that's common in prophecy. A good example of that is Zechariah chapter 12. So hopefully you're at Zechariah chapter 12. I think I, I might have read some of this last week. I at least referred to it. This is a good example of... I'm going to take it as a millennial fulfillment, but if you want to take it as an ultimate fulfillment, I'm not going to quibble with you. My point is this. What you're reading, what we're going to read in Revelation 20, chapter 12, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. It goes like this. And you may be skeptical at the beginning, but I think where, as we go through the chapter, will be reason why I don't know how you could argue it has happened. But Zechariah chapter 12. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. Now, if I'm taking this in the future, and I am, I don't think in that future day when nations are gathered against Jerusalem, I really don't take it that they're going to be on horses and in chariots. But that's very familiar language because that would be the greatest threat they know at the time uh, Zechariah is writing. If you want to fear an army, you're fearing an army that's not on foot. You're fearing an army that has, has riders on horses and chariots and they are equipped for battle. And so that's the language he uses, though I don't think that's the way it will actually play out. Um, verse 4 again, I'll, re- I'll start over. Verse 4, on that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts their God. That's an expression of faith, or at least an expression of phrase. When these... When these people in Jerusalem that are holed up as the nations are gathered against them and the Lord delivers them, they're going to they're gonna express praise to God. God is our deliverer. He's, he's delivered us from our enemy in this particular situation. Skip down to verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David... And the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David... And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn on that day. On that day, who, is, who are they mourning over that has been pierced? other than Jesus who died on a cross and was pierced for our iniquities. They didn't receive him the first time. They're the ones that cried out, crucify him. But on that day, when the Lord works this mighty deliverance, when all nations are gathered up against Jerusalem, and the Lord delivers, and then the Lord pours out this spirit of repentance upon the Jews, and they look on the one who they called out to have him crucified, and they will mourn for him because they will realize they rejected their own Messiah. 
And there's a conversion that takes place in Zechariah chapter 12, Zechariah chapter 12 to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Beyond that, it's to Jerusalem first, to the Jews and also to the Gentiles on that day. Now go to Isaiah chapter 61. In Isaiah chapter 60, we had a prophecy that mostly was about Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. How Jerusalem will be exalted. The Lord hasn't forsaken his namesake city, the city that is named after himself. Uh, the city where he chose to associate his glory. The city where he uh, instructed that the temple would be built. So in, in Isaiah chapter 60, you've got this glorious picture of Jerusalem. And then in Isaiah chapter 61, that picture is elaborated on and developed. How did this take place? How did this great reversal take place? Because in Isaiah, I wish we had all the time in the world to just rehearse everything we've already done time and time again. But in Isaiah chapter, in Isaiah previous chapters, you've got these horrible depictions of Jerusalem. The idolatry and the sin and the judgment and all seems lost. And then you've got Isaiah 60 where everything is restored and it's better than it ever was. And how did that happen? How did we go from the darkest night to the most glorious future? And Isaiah chapter 61 begins to unpack that and explain for us where this change took place, how it took place. So let me read chapter 61 of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. And then a very important phrase, that he may be glorified. Because in chapter 60... While most of the chapter is all about Jerusalem being exalted, all of that springs from the fact that the Lord is glorified in in exalting Jerusalem. The ultimate goal in everything is to the glory of God. And so here, the ultimate goal is that he may be glorified. Verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest. No, like a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up nations. So the context is still primarily Jerusalem, but in those first, say, four verses, three verses, you've got a lot of first-person singular pronouns. So you've got, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me 
to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Who's the me? Who is this person that's referred to in those first three verses? Well, that answer is not hard. We know it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that because you read about it in Luke chapter 4. We'll be there in a little bit. Where Jesus, very early on in his ministry, he goes to his to the synagogue, as was his custom on the Sabbath day. He goes to the synagogue, and whoever was in charge of the synagogue, at least on that particular Sabbath day, asked Jesus to bring a word, to read scripture. And Jesus found the place where it is written in Isaiah chapter 61, those first few verses, and Jesus reads them. And then he rolls up the scroll, and everybody's eyes are looking at Jesus, kind of like you're looking at me, except they would have been, they would have been on the edges of their seat because they've heard things about Jesus. Jesus is doing things now in his 30th year that were not happening the first 30 years. There's, there's stories of miracles. There's stories of power. There's stories of miraculous signs. Jesus reads what we just read in the first part of Isaiah chapter 61, and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they know what that means. He's claiming to be that me in Isaiah chapter 61. So many commentators, though not all, are going to say this is another one of Isaiah's servant songs. Now, the reason why it may not be qualified as that is because he's never actually called the servant there. And in previous servant songs, we know the servant of the Lord suffered in Isaiah chapter 53. He's called the servant. And so you're not guessing. Well, we know it's the same person, but I don't know it should be called a servant song or not. I'm probably okay with that, where the servant is issuing this song regarding himself and his ministry in Isaiah chapter 61. Now you've got some more personal pronouns in verses 10 and 11. In verse 10 it reads, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Who is that me? Who is that I? Two possibilities. The initial possibility that I was going with is that this is somebody who's received the salvation that the servant brought. If you're a Christian, you could find yourself in verses 10 and 11. He's clothed me with garments of salvation. I don't deserve them. I'm not righteous. But because of what the servant did in Isaiah 61, the first few verses, because of his suffering back in Isaiah chapter 53, I've experienced a change and I'm rejoicing. But I think the better way to understand those last two verses, verses 10 and 11, is it's still the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. Because back in the end of Isaiah 59, remember the Lord said, nobody's working salvation for my people, I'm going to do it for myself. I, by my own arm, will work salvation for my people. And then in Isaiah chapter 61, we find out how he does it. And the Lord God covers Christ, the Messiah, with garments of salvation. And Messiah is the one that is rejoicing in verses 10 and 11 because Jesus delights in doing his Father's will. He delights in bringing salvation as the Father has planned. There's no higher purpose. We think, like, why did Christ come? You know, sometimes in whatever, I'm sure you've been in a church or a Bible study where somebody's asked, like, why did Jesus come? And if you were to say Jesus came to save sinners, you would be true. that would be a true statement. But that's not the highest reason why he came. The most important, the highest reason why Christ came was in obedience to his Father, to be pleasing to his Father, to live a life of perfect righteousness and obedience to his Father. His greatest delight wasn't to save sinners. His greatest delight is to be in perfect fellowship with his Father no matter what. Because he and the Father were one. Because they've shared glory from all eternity. He delighted to do his Father's will. That's exactly what I read in Hebrews chapter 12, which says, "...who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame. What was the joy set before him? The joy of doing his father's will, of being obedient even to death on a cross, even though it meant shame, even though it meant humiliation, even though it meant suffering. Yet it was all done in obedience to his father, and there was no greater joy that Christ could have than living a life of perfect obedience to his Father. Joy is an inner attitude of heart, of being in right relationship with God, no matter the circumstances. The difference between, and I, I kind of have it in my head that Connie read a book that may dispute this, so I'd be always interested to know about that. If I had all the time in the world, I'd love to read books like that. But my understanding has always been the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness comes from the word happening, or it's related to the word happening, happiness depends on what's happening. And if what is happening is what you want to happen, you are happy. But if what is happening is not what you want, you're unhappy. So it very much fluctuates depending on what is happening. Joy has nothing to do with what's happening. It doesn't make any difference what's happening. It doesn't make any difference what you read in the news. It doesn't make any difference who's in power. It doesn't make any difference... Who's saying you need to do what? Joy is determined by being in a right relationship with God, with your Father. Jesus was filled with joy. It didn't make any difference what was happening. He was performing his Father's will, even to death on a cross. And he delighted in that. This chapter, chapter 61, is filled with joy. All kinds of joy. You've got in uh, uh, garments of praise in verse 3. You've got gladness in verse 3. You've got rejoicing in verse 7. You've got everlasting joy in verse 7. You've got greatly rejoicing in verse 10 and exulting in my God. And you've got praise in verse 11. You've got lots of joy and celebration in Isaiah chapter 61. Who else is rejoicing? We know the Messiah's rejoicing. We know he's exulting in that he gets to do his father's will, come what may. But who else is rejoicing in Isaiah 61 or within the context of the scripture? Let me go through it with you very quickly. Number one, the near fulfillment is you've got the exiles rejoicing. Because roughly 70 years ago, they were sent out of Jerusalem into exile. They're living in a foreign land, but they're coming back with... Rejoicing, it's partly a fulfillment of Isaiah 61. They're celebrating, they're going back to Jerusalem, back to their homeland, going up on Mount Zion, and they're celebrating God didn't abandon us to the Babylonians. He's bringing us back. That's reason to celebrate. That's the near fulfillment. The future fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61 is the Jews who experience and celebrate Messiah's coming. Whoops. Jesus read Isaiah chapter 61 and he said, this is about me. And they're celebrating. Those that receive him as Messiah, they're celebrating. So this is a greater celebration than exiles who leave Babylon. This is a celebration of people who see and touch and listen to Jesus and experience his life and his ministry. That's reason for celebration. A third reason for celebration would be, though, in the millennium, if you're going to go with this, you've got the Lord making what is called in Isaiah chapter 61 an everlasting covenant. And he tells the Jews, you are going to be priests, which is a fulfillment of Exodus. I should have looked it up. I think it's... I know it's chapter 19, it might be verse 6, it might be verse 7, I could be wrong about that. But in Exodus 19, 6 or 7, the Lord tells Israel, all 12 tribes, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. I thought there was one priestly tribe. There was, it was the tribe of Levi, and there was one priestly family, it was the family of Aaron. But there was some sort of a prophecy in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. It's not going to be limited to just one priestly tribe, one out of 12. You're all going to be priests. If the whole nation is priests, who are they serving? Gentiles in the millennium. Possibility. The ultimate and final uh, uh, fulfillment 
of this joy and this celebration. The ultimate fulfillment is in Revelation 21, where you've got a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, and there is no temple because the Lord is the temple. That's the ultimate. So you've got these layers. You've got this wave upon wave of joy. And each joy, each celebration, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it culminates in a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, let's go a little bit further. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Look at how Jesus actually fulfilled this. Luke chapter 4. So I'm assuming you can find your way to the third gospel. Luke chapter 4, this is early on in Jesus' ministry. It's after he's been baptized. It's after he was driven by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted. And then he comes back. He's worked uh, some miracles uh, in Judah. Uh, he, did the, he did the miracle of turning water into wine in John chapter 2. But very early on in his ministry, you have this incident, which I've already referred to. It's Luke chapter 4. And we're going to pick up at verse 14. Is that right? Luke chapter 4. Well, I guess we're, I'm going to skip around a little bit. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. It reads like this. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went, in, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What Jesus did not read from Isaiah chapter 61, which almost every commentator views as very significant, but I'm not going to say it's unanimous. But what Jesus didn't read, uh, in Luke's gospel, verse 19, it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If he'd read just a little bit more, he would have read, and the day of vengeance of our God. And the day of vengeance of our God. But he didn't read that, at least the way it's recorded in Luke's gospel. I think it's significant, because when Christ came the first time, he came to proclaim the Lord's faith. When Christ comes back in power and glory with the angels of heaven, he will be declaring the day of vengeance. In the year of the Lord's favor, it's an opportunity that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When he comes back in power and glory with the angels of heaven, it will be a day of vengeance, and all opportunity is lost. It's over. I think there's a difference between uh, a contrast between a year and a day. We live, I think, in what is metaphorically a very long extended year of the Lord's favor. Where the gospel is meant to be preached and lived among all the nations. And we are, the church is here to commissioned by Christ to his church, commissioned with a message Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a year of the Lord's favor. But there will come a day, not an extended period of time, but a day in which he will come back as King of kings, Lord of lords, and judge of of the righteous and the unrighteous. He will be judge of all in that day. And you've kind of got that contrast. Now let me go through just a couple of questions from Luke chapter 4, what we find out about Jesus. Number one, Where does Jesus get his commission? Where does he get his commission? And the answer is, Jesus reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. His commission comes from the Spirit of the Lord. Question number two, how is he commissioned? It says, because he has anointed me. My commission comes from the Spirit of the Lord. He's anointed me at his baptism. Number three, 
What is Jesus commissioned to do? His commission came from the Spirit. He's anointed by the Spirit. What is he commissioned to do? What is the task? And the answer is to proclaim. That could be good or bad. To proclaim is the commission. So what does that commission, what does the message to proclaim look like? Well, it looks like good news, liberty, recovery, and year of the Lord's favor. Now that reminds me of John, like it used to be the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3.16 at verse 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He could have proclaimed, you bunch of sinners, you're all damned to hell. What makes any of you think you're good enough for the kingdom of heaven? You're all damned. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He's given commissioned by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, to proclaim a message of the year of the Lord's favor and liberty and recovery of sight to the blind. It's good news. Uh, this year of the Lord's favor is a reference to the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament, which we don't have time to look at. In the Old Testament, I think particularly it's in Leviticus chapter 25. You've got this, remember the layers of how God fulfills what he's going to do? One of the early layers way back in Leviticus is every 50 years the Jews celebrated a year of Jubilee where all debts were forgiven. And in fact, the word Jubilee, which only occurs 27 times in the Old Testament, 14 of the 27, uh, just over half of all occurrences of the word Jubilee occur in Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25 is one of the greatest pronouncements of celebration you will find in Scripture. Because it anticipates all that's going to be fulfilled ultimately in a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. But they got to experience it every 50 years. What God was going to ultimately do, they experienced every 50 years. And so he's declaring the year of the Lord's favor. They have some context of we understand what that means. They have some understanding of what that means. Now, Jesus is laying out his ministry early on in Luke chapter 4. He's just getting started in a ministry. He says, I'm commissioned by the Spirit of God. I'm anointed by Him. I'm proclaiming this good news, this year of the Lord's favor. He's saying it at the outset. You can now follow His ministry until He ascends back up to the Father, and you can say, did He fulfill His ministry? Did He proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? Recovery of sight? Was it good news? I mean, as you look back on Jesus' life, did he fulfill all those things? And the answer is yes. He's telling you ahead of time how you can judge him, how you can look at him. Did I meet these requirements or didn't I? And I think the answer has to be, yes, he met those requirements. It's a celebration. It's straight up 1130. We usually leave at 15 till, so I'm going to have to transition to the Lord's Supper in just a moment, but I think this is a decent enough stopping point. Are there comments and questions? Terry. Yeah, that's that, that would be one way to look at the cross. Another way to look at the cross would be, you know, our joy stems from the being in right relationship with God so that we extend right relationship with one another. Our right relationship with one another is a, an outcome or the fruit of being in right relationship with God. Until this is restored, we'll never be at odds. We'll, we will always be at odds with one another. So that's another way to look at it. So, Cindy? Why would there need to be? I have no idea. That's my stumbling block. I have, I can, I, I'm, lo- I'm at a loss. I said, I confess last week, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of a millennial temple where animals are being slaughtered, blood is being shed and sprinkled. I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with a sin offering on any level. So I, that's, a, that's a dissonance in my, my understanding. I don't know why there was so much ink would have been spent describing a temple which seems future. We haven't seen this temple. We've never seen the glory of God uh, return to the temple just as you saw the glory leave. 
That's never been realized, so it seems like it has to be a millennial temple. But I'm uncomfortable with slaughter, sacrifice, sin offerings, blood. So, I, maybe Hannah's got it. Well, I, I'm, I have more questions than I have answers. But I, th- this is part of the layers. This part of the, the church is the visible expression of the kingdom of God on earth right now. God's grace is being extended through the church, not through Israel. And the church ministers as priests to the nations around us. And for an amillennialist, they probably will say, and that's the most you can hope for. Uh, I, but my other struggle, my other guardrail is I'm seeing too much in the Old Testament where I can't equate with the church. So I'm at dissonance on that, and I don't know how long I'll live, so I don't know that I'll ever arrive at solutions. It took me roughly 10 years of my life to change my eschatology from a very traditional, probably people don't care, like half, half people may not even, but from a very pre-trib, uh, you know, the church is raptured out. There's going to be seven years of judgment, and then Christ comes. I change from that to just, I think the church goes through whatever the last seven years is like. I'm sorry. Uh, if, if I'm wrong, I get a go-to, though, so that's what I've said. But the best, it took me ten years to make that transition. RHMA, the mission organization I was with, was not happy with that change. Uh, they decided to do lots of things to me, <laughs> try to change my mind and tell me I was this horrible person. Uh, I can agree to disagree. I'm okay with being wrong about that. I'm ho- I hope I'm wrong about that. I have no desire to go through tribulation, but I, I can't see it. Uh, Sarah and then Rick. Good. I I have something I can very much do with that. But I gotta probably wait till next week. Well, that's on you. I we'll talk over lunch. Uh Rick. Was what? Oh, that's a great question. Uh I'm pretty sure we probably asked that of Larry back when he was going we were going through the Pentateuch. I don't think there's any record of that ever happening. Uh, it doesn't mean it didn't, but I don't, as I recall, I don't, I could be wrong though. Uh, it's amazing how much time is spent regarding what the year of Jubilee looks like, because it's in, it's in Leviticus chapter 25, I think if we were to look at the passage, it's from verses 8 to 55. So it's not just like, oh, and don't forget the year of Jubilee, one, one or two verses. It is an extended treatment of what the year of Jubilee looks like. It's, it's lengthy. And as I recall, there's no clear, explicit, and here's the celebrated the year of Jubilee, uh, which is kind of interesting. Kind of interesting. I guess I want to suspect, I suspect if you were in debt, and if you'd fallen on hard times, you would have been, hey, this is like year number 50. Don't we like do a reset? Like I'd be okay with that. If you're the guy holding the debt, and have acquired all these assets, you may be happy to just, uh, uh, that was a great idea, but it's not so much. I mean, I don't know.